It's not time yet. <laughs> you guys. How'd I do? That's supposed to be what, where we finished, yeah? Okay. Uh, all right, let's get started. Thanks for coming up here if you're not from here on a beautiful Monday morning. Tw minus 22 Celsius by my thermometer this morning, which was minus 8 Fahrenheit, I think. I live very close to campus, just on US 41 here. A beautiful morning. I had to walk to the library, and then I had to hang out there for 20 minutes to warm up before I could walk up here. Uh, a couple things. I've tried really hard to find an alternative to this, but I don't. I can't find one, so I'm going to have to cancel class on Wednesday. My apologies. I have to go to a tour of a pilot biomass facility they've got on Michigan Tech here, and it's just too early in the semester for me to give you a guest lecture from one of my students on regression applications because it's just too early. What I what I will do is I'll, I'll um. So I'm sorry. I hope you're not offended. So so. <laughs> Let's hope by the end of the semester you'll forgive me. Um, and Thursday, I have to, to uh, sub, it's a pointless story, I have to sub for my wife and her daycare at quarter to 12 because she has to go to a doctor's appointment. So I have to leave the recitation by 11.30. We can start early if you like, or we can meet any other time to make that convenient for you. I think I've asked you to finish the first homework by Friday or Monday, I can't remember. It's, Monday, yeah. So if you and and by the way, you don't have to just come in that hour. That's one of the nice things about teaching grad students. Undergrads will not do homework except during the lab session. They will not do it any other time. Most of the time, I found that grad students will do it when they feel like it, and they're actually schedule things and are smart. And so, my apologies to undergrads who are in here. Any anybody who's an undergrad in the class is, I'm certain, behaving like a grad student. So we don't have to worry about you either. Um, and I'm, if, you, if you can't come to the recitation and you want to sit down with me one-on-one -on -one in my office for an hour, that's just fine. Send me an email uh, and we can do that. So I hope that's less of an inconvenience than missing classes. Um, I'm not the kind of person that will just double speed today so we can get through everything really quickly. So miss anything. Um, we'll try to catch up where we can through the semester, okay? Yes, sir? When are you going to be in the lab on Thursday? I can be there anytime Thursday morning. I, I usually have a conference call scheduled with a postdoc uh, who doesn't live here on the hour before that, but I can move it. I will move it. How's that? So anytime you want, just send me an email and say, I want you at 10. I'll be there at 10. You better have something for me to do, though, otherwise I'll be bored. 
It's warm in here. What I really like you to do is summarize your answers and then attach a script if, if necessary or if prudent to show me that you did it in R. The best thing about attaching a script is I can skim them and if I see something in there that I think you could have done more efficiently or differently, I can just make a few pointers to that. And uh, I, I have answered this question to uh, one or more students in class by email already and I'll just repeat what I said, which is, and just need you to communicate the answers. I'm assuming that if you don't, if you, if, if you are actually copying somebody else's work, then you're not, this is, that's your problem and your loss, not mine. So I'm not, I don't need you to show me your long hand to prove me that you did it correctly and so forth. I want you to show me that you did the work. And I'm assuming most of you will get everything correct because you're smart folks. And if, you don't, if you're not sure, you'll ask somebody or ask me. It was a lesson I didn't learn, actually, until I was a grad student for an entire year. So if you go to the lab, and ask the TA or the instructor, they would tell you what you did wrong and then you'd fix it before you hand it in and I never, after that, I got 100% in all my labs. You'd think that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me. So it might not be obvious to one of you, but if you're not sure if you got the answer correct, send, send it to me and I'll tell you and then we'll figure it out because the goal here is for you to learn the material. So I do like it if it's tidy, you should put your name, date, and something that identifies the, you know, like it's FW5411 problem set one or something on there, some context, not just a sheet that starts off with 1.1, yes, <laughs> 1.2, maybe, you know, something like that. Is that, will that do? Yeah? Okay. I guess do you want emailed or hard copy? Either's fine. Okay. It's, it's actually, sometimes hard copy is easier because otherwise then I have to sit there and make hard copies, unless we can do this all through Canvas, but I, I don't know, is any, how do you guys have, have folks ever done that for you? Done everything through Canvas? Yeah? You can set it up where you have an assignment and then we upload something. Yeah. And then you can comment and then we can download it. I've had one press do that. How did you like that? <laughs> I didn't really care, but I, I made his life easier. So yeah, I took a section of our, our undergrads have this class called Capstone in the fall, and I took a section of that, and I had four students, and they were uploading stuff to Canvas, which was convenient. But in that case, I was marking up their work and track changes and then just sending it back, uploading it back. But I don't know if that would be a, an effective way in this class. Who's paperwork? I mean, I don't mind doing that, but now I have to figure out how to make this happen on Canvas, right? <laughs> to create an assignment? Like you were saying with the shortcuts for R, it might be a little more difficult. You can get into the you know, equation right here. Right. Right. Yeah, we can print double-sided, can't we? Black and white's free. I don't know. Let's do the first one on paper. Give me a hard copy, and we'll see if we can't shift. I'd love to shift to a paperless world. We'll see if we can't figure out a way to do that. How's that? That way we can keep moving forward. All right. Any other questions? But that doesn't mean the, does that mean the script as well? If you, if you want to just email me the script, that's fine. But then if I want to make comments, I'm going to have to print it out and write them on there and give them Somebody back to you. <laughs> print double-sided, take the spaces out, shrink the font. My son prints these PDFs out and he puts like 12 pages. I don't know how he can read it. I can't read normal size script anymore without reading glasses. So don't do that. <laughs> All right.
let's carry on here. So where I left on Friday, we were talking about um, examining a regression in detail, and I had drawn this example um, with the x and y axis. And here we're talking about the population regression line. So I've described the regression in terms of um, its parameters using capital Greek letters. So the, the y-intercept is beta naught instead of the little b that you might have learned in basic stats. And the slope is beta 1. That's the rise given one unit of run, if you like, on the regression line. And then we can define some, some points in space that are interesting to us. Y hat i, which is the fitted or the predicted value. It's the, it's the value of y that corresponds with the point on the regression line for any given value of x. Call it y hat. or I will probably call it y hat or the predicted value or the fitted value. Um, predicted, we try not to say predicted because that implies something different from the, the value that corresponds to an observation and the data you use to fit the regression. So the true, the true description here should really be a fitted value. Okay. Some any other point in your data set, just some xi, yi, your observed xy pair. And then the difference between those two is called uh, the residual, which we use a capital epsilon, I think, is the Greek letter. Uh, sororities and fraternities are not big at UBC, so I never understood any Greek letters. But everyone here learns these if they go to college. Right. I went to the University of Idaho in, in September. There are these people driving around in pickup trucks, and they're all decorated, and they're hanging off, screaming and yelling and throwing beer cans in the street. I didn't know what the heck was going on. And then I said, oh, it's, it's Rush or Frosh or I don't know. Anyway, whatever. I don't know these things. I've sort of learned a little bit. Because you live here, you can't avoid it entirely, can you? Plus, I live across the street from a sorority, which is, which is probably a lot better than living across the street from a fraternity. They're always quiet. All right, I'm not succeeding in being funny this morning. You're just stating the obvious. <laughs> What did my son tell me a joke? Why did the chicken cross the road, roll around in mud, and then cross back? I can't remember. It was something about a dirty, rotten chicken. <laughs> I got you to laugh by not being funny. Excellent. All right, let's carry on. So <clears throat> I, <described laughs> I said for each of these, we can describe the line with an equation. There, I got you going. <laughs> we can describe the line with an equation. And for the population line, we describe it using the measured values, okay? So we can say that the, the, I introduced the concept of a statistical expectation and, and that the line can be described as a conditional expected value. What we expect the value of y to take, given x takes some individual value across its range, and we can express that for the population regression using the coefficients, right? Well, there's a second... Um, corresponding line, which is the line for the actual data that we've collected and we've used to estimate the model. And that line takes the form with a little hat. And we can estimate that using our fitted values of x, of the regression, b0 and b1. We use these sample-based estimates as estimates of the population parameters. Okay? Uh, so that, so we often actually replace this thing here with just y hat or the fitted value because that's what it is. The corresponding point on, on the line for any given value of x is the fitted value. So we can just replace this with y hat. 
and you'll usually see me write it that way when I write it in the text. We can also just, so this is, these, this is the equation for the line, and it's important. This is for the line or the regression surface. There's a corresponding equation, y hat is b0 plus b1x plus e. This is an equation for a point or one observation in your data set. That's this thing up here, some observation in your data set. So if we were drawing the regression line for a given sample, first of all, it'd be a different line because the line depends on the data you collect to estimate it, and we'd replace these with our estimates. This thing then becomes a little residual. Okay? If we were talking in the context of our data that we use to fit the line. Okay. And actually, if you want to get really specific, this might be called y hat xk. So it's the fitted value corresponding to the kth value of x in our fitting data set. All right. Now, too much talking about the regression line, no talking yet about how the heck do we come up with these things, b0 and b1. Because in reality, what we have, when you come back from the field, hot and sweaty, tough on all your data, you don't have a regression line. You just have a bunch of dots, a bunch of observations. How do you estimate B0 and B1? Well, the whole idea of, um, of uh, regression, the way we, we're going to tackle it in a parametric form, is use a method that's known as least squares. And what we do is we define the best regression line for these data as the one that minimizes the square of these little residuals. Okay. If you square them and you find the position of the line that minimizes that squared so the sum of those squared differences, you have the best line for your data. Now you can see that if I was to propose this line for my data, right, which, which is clearly a positive increasing line, if I, was to, I would have some very massive residuals here for these data points. These are very massive residuals. So if I want to find the line that minimizes the sum of squares residuals, any candidate line that has huge residuals like this is severely penalized. The best line is the one that goes through the data because it's going to minimize those sums of squared residuals. So we want to find B0 and B1 such that the sum of these residuals is minimized. Now, how do we do that? It turns out there's a really, it's really not that hard to do for a simple linear regression, and it's not even that hard either when you do it in the context of multiple regression um, because we can use some tricks with matrix algebra. But you can re-express the residuals here as just the observations minus the fitted values. So we can, if we do a sum of those squared, that's just the sum of that squared. Right? And actually, we know that y hat i is just b0 plus b1 times x i. So we can substitute this into our equation. And we get this thing 
squared. All right? Now, how do you find the two values of this that minimize the total? I used to know how to do this. It involves calculus. Anybody remember enough calculus to do that? If you'd like to, you can show me, because I don't remember. It has to do with taking the, the, the derivative of this with respect to the two unknowns, and you get two equations, you set them equal to zero, and you solve. And there is a trick for solving a series of two equations with one unknown, and I don't remember what it was. It was something from high school algebra as well. But when you do that, you get the very familiar solution from, and those of you who've taken um, basic stats recently will have done this by hand, the solution to the normal equations. I never do this by hand, so I always have to copy it up here. But those of you may know it. Solve for the unknown, simplify, and you get this thing. You might not want to write this down because I guarantee you it's in your textbook. So we'll just think for a second because I just want to describe the parts. If you want to write it down, that's fine. Or just open your textbook to the right page. Does this look familiar yet? Something like that. And I'm also guilty, by the way, of not putting in these indices for my summation notations. But they just make it messy, and it's usually implicit. So just so we're on the same page, you know this cap sigma is a summation notation. And we're summing across the set i equals 1 to n. That's all of our data we've collected to fit the regression. Okay. The top part here is sometimes described in regression textbooks as SPXY and the bottom as SSX. That stands for the sum of the products of X and Y. Well, it's the sum of the product, so subtracting the product of the sums divided by N. We call that SPXY over SSX. And you can get some calculators. I remember when I was an undergrad having a calculator where you could type in the data and it would give you these sums of squares automatically. Um, by the way, some notations in some textbooks will be like that. And I'm going to do this just off and on. They're no different. This is just the same thing, just with slightly different notation. Clearly, SXY stands for sum of the product of X and Y. And SXX is the sum of X squared or sum of squared X whichever one of these you might see in the textbook. If you've done regression by hand, you've probably had to calculate this by hand. Okay. How do we get the, our estimate of the uh, intercept? We get, better get this right. I always do it wrong. Ah, I got it wrong again. Because it's simple algebra. This, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I shouldn't have to think that hard about it, but you may have remembered from the example I showed you last week, the point x bar, y bar falls on the regression line. 
So all we're doing here is we're solving for B0 since, since if Y bar has to be B0 plus B1 X bar, that's our regression equation. Actually, we usually say Y hat is B0 plus B1 X. Well, if X is X bar, and we know that Y bar has to fall on the regression line, then it just becomes this. And you just rearrange it algebraically to get that piece. That's where it comes from. All right, now you've solved for your simple linear regression. Now, some things about these estimates that are important to remember, especially if you do a lot of regression in your thesis and you have a quantitatively inclined person on your committee who wants to zing you, which I had when I was a master's student. Um, some interesting properties that I've already mentioned. By definition, by definition, if we use this process, the sum of these uh, is minimized. And that's a condition because that's how we solve for them. We use calculus, we took the derivatives, we set them to zero and solved to find the minimum in the function. It happens that the sum of these residuals, use the little computer terminology, is zero. The sum of the residuals not squared equals zero. It's a line that, that, and I've already mentioned that this point uh, falls on the regression line. And at this point, we've estimated our mean function. Are we done? Are we happy? Well, first of all, you don't want to do this by hand, as it's time consuming for anything other than a trivially small data set. You could do that in Excel actually pretty quickly, right? A column of x and y's, and you have an x, x, y, and then you sum the x's and sum the y's and multiply those pieces. I mean, you could actually do this in Excel pretty fast. Or you could use the add trend line function and just get the, the coefficients. Or you could use the um, analysis tool pack, which is what I, what I teach the undergrads, and that's where I stop. Um, I wouldn't do this. I'd just use this in, do this in R and use the LM function. And the LM function in R stands for linear model. And you'll use LM whenever you want to fit a regression. If you're interested, remember, if you're in R and you just type at the prompt question mark LM, you should get the help page for the LM function. Or you can do help.search. And you can put in quotes. LM or anything else that you think might be a good keyword for you to help you find help on the LM function. LM is actually quite easy in R. You have to supply it the model here and then you have to give it some optional things which are data and many other options that have to do with weights and things that you can do. The model is the equation you want to fit. And so if you happen to have some data like you said Y is just 10, 20, and 30, and you had x, uh, 5, 7, 9, like that, then you could fit a linear regression going y as a function of x, just like that. That little function of, that's a tilde. I can't remember which keystroke that is on the keyboard, but. And that would give you, if you did all three of these, it would give you a regression, which I should hope has a positive slope. 
be done. That's the simplest possible, possible example. What, it, what, what LM will return for you are estimates of the slope and intercept. That's it. If you want more information, what you really should do is take the output of LM and assign it to a, an object. MM for my model. This will create a fitted regression object called MM. And then you can use the summary command on MM. And by the way, you can use the summary command on almost any R object. And you'll get a summary of it. And the summary is particular to the nature of the object. This will give you a much longer set of output that includes calculations of the correlations between X and Y, the regression coefficients, t-tests for the null hypothesis that the slopes are zero or the intercept is zero, and some fit statistics, and we'll get into those in just a minute. All right, there's a little sidebar on R. Yes, sir? So if you were doing this in R, the data points would come from your data set? Yeah. Not just like... I, I just made them up. Okay. But you could import them. And, I mean, we can keep going on R instead, but normally I, I prefer when I fit R... Uh, when I fit models or when I work with data in R, not to do this, actually. And so usually a bad instructor starts by teaching you what not to do. So my preference, actually, is to create, would be to create a data frame. And usually if you import a data set, if you've collected an extensive data set, you've got an Excel spreadsheet, for me anyway, when I look at a spreadsheet, columns are attributes and rows are observations. It's pretty common. I've measured 1,000 trees. I have a spreadsheet with 1,001 rows in it because the first row is my column headings. And it's got all the individual attributes that I want. And so I import that into a data frame. But you could also create a data frame called myDF. And you could have it as data.frame. And you could have y equals c, what did I call it, 10, 20, 30, and you could have x equals c, 5, 7, 9, like that. That'll create a data frame, or you've just imported a data frame called myDF, and it'll have two columns, and it'll have three rows, and data frames have named columns explicitly. One of them will be called 1y, and the other one will be called x. But let's just change this for a minute. Let's call this... R for response and P for predictor. So we're using different names than that example on the right. Then the next thing I could do is I could say LM R tilde P comma my DF, like that. And what this does is it passes the whole data frame to the LM function. The LM function then goes and it looks for a column called R and a column called P. And it uses R as the response and P as a predictor and fits the function. And in fact, I, following my example, I should actually have put what I call it, my mod, and then I would say the summary, my model, like that. I encourage you to do it this way because, and I still have some students who don't want to, and some folks, what we'll do is they'll have a data frame and it might have 15 different attributes in it. You know, slope, aspect, elevation, latitude, soil dryness, soil moisture, or soil fertility, blah, 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 a whole bunch of attributes. And they'll extract them all and assign them all to different variables. They'll pull the response out and they'll say, why um, my dat 
dollar sign R. They'll extract the column R out of the data frame and put it in a new object, just a vector called Y. Then they'll extract all the individual ones, then they'll fit the R object like I did on the right-hand side. The problem is you lose track of when you extracted Y. Whenever you start busting your data up into little pieces that you have to keep track of all those pieces separately, you have a greater risk of losing track of which ones. Sometimes and you're like, well, I want to try a different model. I'll have a different Y. I'll call this Y1, and then I'll have a Y2. And then I think I wanted to do an X squared, so I took X3 and I multiplied it by X3, and I called it X32, and I can't remember if that's really X32 or X3 squared. And you know, if you just keep everything in the data frame, then you rebuild the data frame. Oh, found an error. Rebuild the data frame. Don't have to change anything else in your script, and away you go. So I encourage you to, to, to work with R this way. There are parallels. I, think, I don't think you even have an option of doing anything other than this in SAS, for example, because you have to have data objects. You could probably extract parts of data objects and data steps and create whole bunches of other data objects, but you'd, most, you'd be inclined to do it. This is the most compact way. And in fact, usually if I fit a simple model, I may even just type summary lm uh, r tilde p my dat. Like that. You can nest everything in R. So we take from the data frame my dad, it pulls out the response and predictor, it fits the linear model, passes the, the result to the summary function, which will then return a summary of what I want. That might be good enough if I'm just doing one quickly. Yes? So the data frame is all the columns and the rows with the respective new names, of, or your names of the things you really want to call them? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. The data frame is like that one big Excel spreadsheet that has all your data in it. One row for every observation you took and one column for every attribute. So tree 500 may have a certain height, diameter, species, grade, whatever. Or plot 20 had this soil carbon, this soil nitro available nitrogen, this CEC. So when you were talking about individually extracting lines, it wasn't necessarily renaming no, that was just pulling them out of the data frame and creating individual little objects in R. And, in, and you'd end up in that R studio up in that box on the right that shows you all your objects. You'd end up with a whole bunch of objects in there. X1, X2, X3, X4, X5, Y, so on and so forth. Constantly just you're, you're pulling them out. You've got to think of R, your workspace is containing a whole bunch of objects. And objects can be all different things. You know, a jar, a, a bread roller, a fork, a pot, some water. You know, whatever. <laughs> Bad cooking analogy, you know, whatever. <laughs> Full of all these objects. And of course, you can, take a, you can take a box of flour, and you can make three little piles of flour, and you still have a box over here which has less flour in it. And you can work with little piles, or you can just take a scoop when you need it and put it in the bowl. Some people like to do that. I let people cook like that, right? You take a whole bunch of bowls out, and you go, okay, I put the spices in this one, sugar in this one, water in this one, eggs, and when I got all the ingredients in all these little bowls, and I dump them all in the big mixing pot. I've created a lot of dishes. But I could just use a scoop and put one, anyway, whatever. Let's... Any other questions? Sorry, I've, di I've spent five minutes on R. It wasn't my intent, but there's some, there's some coding uh, tricks in there that are it's just some, some best practices, I guess, I would suggest. And the other thing I, I think I, I mentioned before, but. One of my former students, who's now postdoc, she started writing R scripts, and for her, an R script was literally just a place to hold R commands that I'm not using right now. 
And so when she wanted to run something, she would go and grab all the pieces that she needed to create the recipe, to create the analysis. And so when she wrote the script, they were all out of order. And so when, when I went to sit down with her to work on something, I'd say, well, let's run the analysis again. And she'd go, okay, we've got to run this line, then this line, and that line, then this line, and that line, and that line, then this line, and that line. And I said, well, why don't you just reorganize them all in a row, right? Because then you can just collect a box of them and just let her rip. Which now she does that. She writes really good code. But it took some time to th really think of it that way. A lot of times we're very instant gratification. You know, I want to run the one line. All right, I got my model. Oh, heck, what does that mean? You know. Okay, any questions? All right, let's carry on. So you remember in basic statistics, you're so happy, you just, did you just say, no, I don't remember basic <laughs> statistics? <laughs> you're so happy you calculated a sample mean. You went to the woods, you ran the experiments, you collected data, you brought it all back, you calculated the sample mean, it's 40. Are you done? No, because you can't just calculate a mean, you have to put a confidence interval on it. Means are not useless by themselves without measures of their precision or your, your, belief, your accuracy in those means. So the same thing is true for a regression line. So it's not good enough just to have the mean function. We, we need, just like when we calculate a sample mean, we go and calculate a sample variance, which we can use to create confidence intervals, we need some idea of the variance of y. And we can get, and how do you get that? Well, f for me, it made a lot of sense instinctively to think about the parallel with basic statistics, okay? So an expected value, so let's just think about basic sample statistics for a moment. The expected value of some random variable y, we usually approximate with a, not with, not with an x bar, with a sample mean. And we calculate a sample mean. Look, we're putting nasty formulas to something inst instinctive. It's just the sum of all the observations divided by n. I've taken something that's extremely instinctive to you and I've made it complicated, which is usually the backwards way of what we're supposed to do. But there's a noble goal here, which is try, try and make that more simple. Does that make sense? Expected value of y is just a sample mean, which we can do by calculating up all our sample observations and dividing by our sample size. All right. So what's our variance of y? We can approximate that with a sample, I guess I should say standard deviation, that that's a variance, right? And how do you calculate the variance? It's the sum of y minus the mean squared divided by n minus one, and we take the square root of the whole thing again. Basic statistics. Now, I should really, the expected value, I should really put little hats here because we're, these are estimates of those things. We're estimating the expected value of y using a sample mean, which we calculate that way. We're estimating the variance of y using a sample variance, which we calculate that way. What is, and I'm sorry I drew, drew that too low on the board, but what do you see this as? The variance is just some kind of squared deviation of observations around their mean, their middle. It's actually, it's an average squared deviance of these observations. Why did I put the square root on there? You guys have to call me out when I make mistakes like that. 
standard deviation, we take the square root. The variance is not the square root. So the variance is some kind of average squared deviation of observations around their mean. The parallel is that for regression, what's our deviance that we've already calculated? It's over, well, it's not here. I've erased it already on the board. It's our residuals. So for regression, a metric of leftover variance around the mean is a residual. And we can calculate some kind of average squared residual by expanding this And if we take this thing and divide it by the sample size, and I'll say, I'll say why that's n minus 2 in a median in a minute, we get some idea of an estimate of our variance of y given x. Okay, so that it follows the same idea. We call this thing, by the way, by notation usually, just to make sure you're totally confused, we call this thing sigma. Or since it's a variance, sigma squared. And I put a little hat to show you that it's an estimate. Why is that confusing? Because that's the same thing we call this. And we use the same notation for our estimate of the variance of a random variable in a simple basic stats context as we do in a regression context. And again, that was something that I found confusing for a long time because to me, sigma was this magical thing that the statistics prof kept telling me I was supposed to be able to de derive for a test. So context becomes important. So the first thing to remember is and when you see this in regression, we're usually referring to the residual variance that we often call this the residual variance around the regression line. It's, off, it's sometimes, actually sometimes called the residual sum of squares. That's not correct. That's what the top part of it is, is. If we take the average of it, so, we, so this thing here, by the way, that thing is called the residual sum of squares. This thing is called the RMS, which stands for not root mean square, but this is the residual mean square. It's also sometimes called the sums of squared error or the sums of squared error, different notations that are used for the same thing. If we take the square root of this thing, remember the square root of a variance is a standard deviation. If we take the square root of this thing, we call this sy dot x, or uh, the residual standard error, the standard error of the estimate. All right. Now there's a problem with the standard error of the estimate. 
But first, I'll tell you why we say s y dot x. Other people use different notations. They'll sometimes say s y bar x like that, a little vertical bar, because we're talking about a conditional variance. We're talking about the variance of y given some relationship with x, some, some deliberate variance with x. So some people will put a y bar x. I actually can't remember what your textbook does yet. When I learned it, it was sy dot x. The text we used to use was xy dot x. Either one works, okay? It's called the standard error of the estimate, and the standard error, this thing, is misnamed because it's not a standard error, even though we call it the standard error of the estimate. The standard error is a measure of the variability of a sampling distribution. And this is not the measure of the variability of any one of these coefficients that we need. These things have sampling distributions, and we'll talk about how we estimate their variances in a minute. But this thing here is the residual variance around the regression line. It's just the sums of those little residuals here. It's the sums of squared of these little residuals. It's a residual variability around the line. Just like in this example, you have a mean and you have the variability of those data around their mean. Here, we have a mean function and we have the residual variability around the mean function. So what does the standard deviation or the variance in a sample statistic tell you? In a basic sampling context, it tells you how variable your data are that you've gone out and collected, taken your ladle, taken a scoop of data, put it in the bucket. What does the standard error of the estimate tell you? It tells you how variable your data are conditional on the regression line, how variable your data are around the mean function. And so, by the way, if you remember my earlier lecture on, on basic statistics, I said that for a normal distribution, around 68% of all the data fall between one or, or, or plus or minus one standard deviation. Okay, so for any normal distribution, There's the mean. Here's plus one standard deviation. Here's minus one standard deviation. But within this range here, it's about 68% of all the probability. And the first homework problem, sorry, the second one, 1 1.2, was just asking you to find some quantiles from a normal distribution that are associated with certain probabilities to the left. Well, since we know, so if I tell you that something has a mean, if I give you the mean, and the standard deviation, and I tell you it's normally distributed, you can tell me roughly where the data are. Well, the same thing is true with the regression. Because if these things, remember I said these are little normal distributions, plus or minus plus one sy dot x, right? And here's minus, or sorry, that's minus, it's below, plus one sy dot x. One standard error on each side of your regression line contains about 68% of your data. Two is 96% of your data. And I'll show you an example in R um, shortly on how we can draw these and calculate them. So the purpose of this here is to show you that these simple paradigms from basic statistics apply very readily to the simple linear regression model. And they do, by the way, to the multiple regression model as well 
uh, when you adhere to this assumption that your data in the y direction follow a normal distribution and it's constant, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. What I'd like you to take away from this is two things. The first is you know, you know that the basis of calculating any 95% confidence interval is coming up with an estimate of the sample standard error. To do that, you need a sample standard deviation. You can't do a confidence interval in basic sample statistics without it. Well, you can't do hypothesis tests unless you can calculate a sample standard deviation, right? You have to get standard error too, but you have to get standard deviation first. Can't do a hypothesis test without it. Can't do a confidence interval without it. Well, the same thing is true with regression. Can't do hypothesis tests or confidence intervals if you can't estimate the residual variability around the regression line. There are standard errors that we'll get to in a minute. Then the other thing is that this thing is misnamed. We call it the standard error, but it's not the standard error. It's, it should be called square root residual variance. It should be called square root residual variance. And the last thing I want to say on this, we'll, we'll move on to doing some uh, hypothesis tests in a minute, is that why is this n minus 2 here? When it's n minus 1 over here. And I'll reiterate this later on. This thing here is, is a magical thing called degrees of freedom. It's the same over there too, it's your degrees of freedom. Degrees of freedom are the number of independent data points you used to calculate your statistic, y bar. And the reason it's n minus 1 is because if I give you y bar, I only have to give you, give you all but one of the data points for you to recover the last one. And I show an example of this in basic stats class, but if you think of it this way, right, there's a, really, there's a really simple closed form math explanation for that. If in basic survey statistics, the sample mean is the sum of all the observations divided by n, if I just put this all the way up here. If I have i equals 1 to n minus 1, I'm going to leave out the nth observation. I still have to put it in there. This is equivalent. Does that make sense? All I'm doing is I'm saying it's the sum of all my observations except the last one. If I add that in there too, I still get the sample mean. The point being that if I know the sample mean and I know all of these observations except for one, I can solve for the last one. The flip side is true. If I know all the observations, but I don't know the sample mean, I can calculate it. So you can lose any one, any one of the observations in your data are not independent of the sample mean. They depend on the value of the sample mean, any given observation. Because you could recover any one of these observations if you didn't know it, if you did know the sample mean. Well, in a regression context, okay, you can find any fitted value if you have two of the other fitted values because you know it's a straight line. As soon as you establish that it's a straight line, you only need two points to define a straight line. So if you have those two points, you can find any other 
corresponding fitted value. So that's why it's n minus 2. And that's really not, is that that important? It's a useful thing to know because in some other contexts we'll talk about why you lose degrees of freedom. It's actually a really good example of, of um, uh, let's see, are there examples in regression? Certainly one in analysis of variance where you, uh, you don't want to use blocking unless you need to because you lose degrees of freedom, you lose independence of some of your data points when you start constraining your analysis. And you do know that the more degrees of freedom you have, the more power you have, so you want to try and conserve them as much as possible. But that's the rationale for where they come from. Okay. I think we'll quit there because I've tortured you with enough equations. What we'll do, uh, I'm, I'm sorry again about, um, about Wednesday. What we'll do on Friday is get through the rest of simple linear regression. Um, we'll talk about uh, uh, the, the overall uh, ANOVA for regression and the uh, F test and T test for in individual uh, coefficients and confidence intervals. And then we'll move on to some more interesting and less is, is it warm in here? Is it just this flannel shirt my wife made me wear? She said it makes me look like a lumberjack. Erg. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, if you have any questions, please send me an email. Com or complaints or concerns, whatever you want. I want you to get what you need out of the class, and I can't do that if I don't know what I'm doing wrong. So please let me know, and I will try to fix it. And it always helps to tell people if they do something right now and then, too. So. I do tell a funny joke someday, just laugh. Thank you.